My name's uh, Peter Forbes, and I'm a member of the Air Transport Committee here at the Royal Aeronautical Society. It's a great pleasure to welcome you all here tonight, particularly those of you who are coming to the Society for the first time. Handling the, uh, the additional traffic from the Olympics and Paralympics has been a considerable challenge for Heathrow. But they proved they could do this, and they made a significant contribution to the success of the Games as a whole. Andy Garner is, or I should say was, London 2012 director and was responsible for the planning and delivery of the Olympics and Paralympics at Heathrow. Andy joined BAA in, in 2008, and prior to his Olympic responsibilities, he was Heathrow Operations Planning Director. Um, he tells me tonight he's now moving on. He's becoming um, one of the directors responsible for the introduction of Terminal 2. Uh, before joining BAA, Andy worked for British Airways. So, Andy, over to you. Peter, thanks very much for that uh, introduction. And uh, what an honour to come and talk uh, to you tonight about our experiences uh, last uh, summer. Um, I don't uh, normally now wear pink. Uh, I, and before the Games, I didn't wear pink. But uh, I stand before you. I thought I'd put the shirt on tonight because very proud to wear this shirt at Heathrow uh, this summer. The, t the shirt, of you see at the back there, the Heathrow volunteers, and I'll talk a little bit about the volunteers as I, as I go forward. It uh, makes the wardrobe decisions in the morning a whole lot easier, I can, uh, I can tell you, when you've got a pink shirt to choose from. But uh, although I, I took responsibility for preparations and uh, uh, delivery of the Games, uh, I'm a proud member of that thing down in the bottom right corner there, Team Heathrow, and that's a central theme I'll, uh, I'll come back to, and I'm really a spokesperson for Team Heathrow uh, here tonight. And uh, there's a few of you in the audience, perhaps you'd raise your hands, who were members of Team Heathrow. Uh, Andy, there you go. So three in there, Mike, over there. Um, in terms of uh, Heathrow itself, just to put a bit of context into where Heathrow was as we went into the uh, Games operational period, can you just raise your hands if you've flown through Heathrow in the last year? Yeah, so pretty much uh, everybody as I had expected and hoped. Um, so going into the Games period, Heathrow has been progressively improving its operational performance since uh, T5 uh, settled. So uh, in the first quarter of the year, we had 75% of customers who rated their experience flying through Heathrow as uh, good or excellent. Uh, that compares to around about 40% in uh, 2006, uh, and quite a strong operational platform. But it's quite interesting if you go on to uh, Google and you type Heathrow, and what is the image of Heathrow? And uh, what, what that tells me is that you get, uh, you get airplanes, buildings, uh, maps, airfield maps, and when you do get people, they're uh, protesting, or they're jammed in a crowd over here. So uh, uh, one of the themes that emerges, and I'll come back to it, is uh, during the summer, during the Games period, Heathrow felt quite uh, more of a human place, um, and uh, we'll, we'll get some clues on that uh, later. People asked me, uh, as I went through uh, this role, after you come out of it and you look back on it, what does what success look like? Well, uh, uh, in my blueprint statement that I signed off with my executive at Heathrow, it said uh, the prime thing we wanted to do was make sure that all passengers travelling through Heathrow uh, had an excellent experience. It wasn't about the Games family, uh, it was about all passengers that came through uh, in that period, and that was our, that was our primary objective. Uh, but some of the symbols uh, to me were important. Uh, Heathrow is 
very well covered in the uh, British press. You might have read a thing or two about Heathrow. Uh, it's not often you read uh, particularly good things about Heathrow. So one of our primary objectives was that there would be no news uh, about Heathrow. Uh, also, it's a pretty key time for Heathrow. There's a the debate about uh, capacity in the southeast. Uh, we have a new regulatory settlement period coming up. So our performance uh, during this period, uh, we were uh, keen to make a good impression on the decision makers in some of those big, uh, big areas for us. And then what about the people who work there? Well, we, went, we did a lot of learning from previous host airports. We, we talked to Sydney and Athens in particular, but uh, we did a lot of work with Vancouver, who hosted the 2010 Games. And uh, after the Games, they produced this uh, lovely photo book. There's memories of staff and uh, what a great time they had during the Games. Uh, and I wanted us to be able to produce our own images of uh, a great place to have uh, been and, and worked during the, the Games. But the main, the main thing for me was the Games, believe it or not, was not about Heathrow Airport. The, the world's media weren't here just to take pictures of Heathrow Airport. It was about the great images of sporting achievement in iconic London venues. So for me, that was the prime piece that when you look back, that's, that's what sticks in your mind. Um, what I want to do now is just take you through a, a, an overview journey, uh, talking about what the actual challenges were we faced at Heathrow, how we planned to address those challenges, uh, how we then prepared like an athlete would for the Games. Uh, how it actually went during the delivery phase, and then what legacy uh, do we continue on in, uh, in Heathrow. So firstly, uh, in terms of the challenge and our approach to it, uh, we were very customer-led. So uh, we wanted to understand what uh, athletes uh, need and want in airports. And you can see there, uh, we work with some what we called athlete ambassadors. Uh, you might reckon, uh, recognize over to the left Colin Jackson there, and uh, Steve Williams, who uh, was a gold medal rower in uh, Athens and Beijing. In the middle, Lucy Suka, Paralympic uh, tennis player. Uh, she got, won a bronze medal in the Games. Uh, Adi Depatan, you saw with uh, Claire Balding on Channel 4, those of you who watched the, uh, the Paralympics. Uh, and importantly, in the middle here, uh, George Fielding. We worked uh, with WizKids, who are a children's uh, charity, and uh, provide equipment for children so they can enjoy their, uh, their childhood. Look out for George. He'll be a future prime minister, a very special uh, young man. Um, in terms of the challenges, they fell into five categories for us, and we, uh, as with everything, likened them to Olympic uh, challenges. Firstly, uh, and uniquely for a host airport, the challenge of airspace and the capacity of southeast airspace. <coughs> so uh, W.S. Atkins did some calculations and uh, projected during the Olympics period, not so much in the Paralympics period, but there were going to be 3,000 uh, more movements coming into southeast airport than would uh, airspace than would normally uh, come in. And there was a concern that airspace would overload, and we certainly at a Heathrow would see uh, delays and, uh, and disruption. Uh, so some measures put in place there that worked extremely well. Uh, other airports of the southeast were slot-coordinated, 30 or so airfields that are not normally slot-coordinated. And you probably heard that we got some operational freedoms in place at Heathrow that uh, would enable us to recover should any uh, disruption occur. But uh, uh, those measures worked uh, perfectly well in terms of the, uh, the airspace challenge. A lot of challenge around passengers. For us, the dynamic at Heathrow was we didn't take any more general aviation traffic, uh, but we saw quite a tip of our mix of transfer and direct traffic. So our calculations suggested on certain key days, which I'll come back to, we were going to overload the front doors of our terminals or on arrival the back doors of our terminals. We had to face and address that challenge. And then particular passenger characteristic challenges, such as uh, uh, Paralympians in wheelchairs in, in high volumes and how to deal with that. Uh, Volunteers, uh, as you picked up during the Olympics, it was a massive uh, piece of the Olympics. And normally, uh, the organizing committee run the volunteers for everything in the airport. Uh, we decided to take on responsibility to recruit 1,000 volunteers 
uh, who wore these uh, uniforms to run the airside meet and greet uh, activity, working with uh, LOCOG, who ran the, the landside uh, volunteer activity. And then surface access, our calculations said uh, there was going to be a shed load of buses uh, coming in, at how, in and out of Heathrow, moving the Gage family in and out. And if we didn't take appropriate plans there, uh, those of you who've flown out of Terminals 1 and 3 will recognise the very tight spaces around our central terminal areas and uh, forecourts. And finally, and probably the biggest single challenge of uh, any host airport you talk, talk about is, is baggage. Uh, the volume that uh, athletes bring, we planned on 3.75 pieces per athlete. Uh, normally, uh, Heathrow, there's an average of one bag per passenger. Uh, and they bring some other things. They bring firearms, they bring canoes, they bring pole vaults. Uh, they bring, obviously, competition wheelchairs for the Paralympics and uh, presents uh, a major challenge. So just running through our plans. Um, when taking on the Olympics challenge, it's not concentrated across every day of the, the summer schedule for us. It's very concentrated around uh, these dates. So starting on the left-hand side there, the 16th of July, uh, a key day, that's when the Olympic Village opened. So uh, we projected on that date we'd see uh, 3,000 athletes coming into Heathrow uh, to go into the village. Just to give you a feel for the, for the numbers overall for the Olympics, the three big groups that come for the Olympics is the athletes. Uh, for the Olympics, about 16,000 athletes compete. Uh, a bigger group than the athletes is the overseas media. There are 20,000 overseas media come for the Olympic Games. And bigger than that, uh, the sponsor group. Uh, it's quite difficult to pin specifically, but around 30,000, 35,000 uh, sponsors. And you'll hear this word quite a bit through this presentation uh, of, of accredited. And it's the athletes that uh, are, are accredited uh, and uh, the overseas media. And that means that they can work in the, and get access to the, uh, the park and the, the village to do, their, to do their work. There are some other groups. There are IOC committee members. There are technical officials. But those are the big numbers that we've got to look at. So 16th uh, was uh, when the village opened. Uh, and then the 26th, the day before the opening ceremony, was when you get all your sponsors coming in. Uh, you get your VIPs. Now, for us, we took some VIPs on scheduled services, uh, but Stansted took a lot of the, uh, the charter and ad hoc movement. We didn't take those into uh, to Heathrow. And progressively during that period, you see the, uh, the overseas media coming in uh, with nothing really to film other than uh, they're looking for a bit of airport chaos and stories to send, to send home. So that was uh, something in our plans that we were cognizant of and put some some plans in place for. Over here, glowing red there, the 13th of August. That's the biggest single challenge associated with uh, dealing with an Olympic Games at an airport. The departure day, the day after the closing ceremony uh, on the 12th. And that's, uh, as you can see, the arrivals are a bit more spread, but the departures very, very concentrated. And then pretty much by the 15th, everything has uh, disappeared. So in terms of our plan, uh, and I'll just step you through this, uh, you recognise there, uh, the journey through an arrival of an airport and a departure. Uh, and uh, in overview, the stuff that's in blue there, that was the overlay solutions we put in place. And where you've got a mix in there, we, we changed some things within each of those uh, process areas. Let me just step you through that. So these volunteers that we recruited, what were they doing? They were doing a meet and greet of uh, athletes and what were called V2s. Uh, V2s were typically uh, IOC committee members. Uh, so a meeting athletes uh, and teams at aircraft side and those committee members and escorting them through the arrival process to their, uh, their onward transport. Uh, we also, they also provided uh, wayfinding around the airport as well. Uh, Christine here was a, was a journey leader. So we had our own non-operational staff who took on a supervisory uh, responsibility for those uh, volunteers from the street. And I'll, uh, I'll come back to that. 
Added to that, we introduced a new process to the airport, uh, accreditation validation. So uh, when the accredited members of the Games family, the athletes, the media and so on, they, you will have seen these uh, passes that they wear around town. So when they come to Heathrow, these accreditation stations manned by Andy's uh, folk from, uh, from LOCOG, uh, manned by uh, complete volunteers, um, you get your pass laminated and you get a lanyard uh, and the system logs that you've arrived in the country. And that's what accreditation validation did. Um, as far as the border was concerned, I think somebody commented to me that they came through the border during the games and found uh, no queues and a smiling uh, border force officer, which uh, we hope will be a continued legacy theme at, uh, at Heathrow. But border force made a commitment that they would fully man every desk at Heathrow from the 15th of July through to the end of August, and that's what they did. And also we had dedicated games lane there for the accredited uh, family. On arrival, the baggage challenge, uh, that's not... That's a bit artificial, that picture, but you get the general idea. Um, was really the guidance from previous host airports was you've got to put a lot of labour into your arrivals halls and some specialist trolleys to help, and that's what we did uh, in our plan. Uh, as you come out into the arrival concourse, they're kind of busy, vibrant areas in any case, and uh, we had to put some more things in there that made it feel a bit like Times Square, to be honest, when you come out with uh, what was going on there. So uh, on the left-hand side there, again, the, uh, the local welcome desks, to help uh, Games family with their onward uh, transport arrangements and any queries. Uh, media zones, we put these in good places. What we learned from Vancouver is don't try and control the media away from the good shots because as soon as the athlete comes through the door, they'll be right over there. So give them uh, good space so they can get the pictures that they want. Uh, and also we created uh, fan zones in those areas. It's quite interesting. Somebody asked me, how can I buy a ticket for the fan zone? It wasn't intended to be somewhere where you buy a ticket. It was intended to give the fans somewhere to come and see their heroes, so that, again, they could get good, uh, good views. Uh, and also in that space, another group of volunteers worth mentioning were the uh, London ambassadors. These were from Boris's office, did a great job uh, promoting uh, London. You might have seen them in a very daunty trilby hat that they were uh, sporting uh, in, the, in the arrivals areas. And then out into the transport, we had three core solutions here. Uh, we had to make 40 changes to our forecourt layouts to carve out bays for the coaches that would take the athletes to the village, uh, we had a good solution with the media. They used the Heathrow Express and went to Paddington and then they were taken on uh, by transport there. And then we had 30 uh, bays in each of our car parks. You will have seen the London 2012 BMWs that were for the, uh, the VIPs and the IOC committee members, as I mentioned. Turning then on to our departure solution, we, we were, uh, as I mentioned, very clearly concerned about the departure day, the 13th of August. And we calculated, though, if we lifted the volume that was in the village away from our front doors, we took those buses off the front doors, we took the passengers off, we took the bags off, then the calculations told us that the rest of the terminal should flow like a busy, uh, busy summer day. So that was our plan, uh, quite a simple planning concept. So the first thing we did, and this was probably uh, Team Heathrow's greatest uh, uh, moment, uh, and Mike was part of uh, the army that went across town to, uh, to deal with this. Uh, we got 10 handlers lots of volunteers from around Heathrow working with LOCOG Logistics. And we went to the uh, ground floor of each of the 10 athletes' blocks and uh, operated a simple manual check-in process there. So athletes came down, we gave them the boarding card, we tagged their bags, chucked their bags into uh, UPS vehicles that then came across to Heathrow overnight. And we used the baggage system available capacity overnight to build those bags to containers to take out on the 13th on the departure day. And then you will have heard, uh, I'm sure, and seen... Uh, we constructed a games terminal. So on the uh, 13th, 
14th and 15th, the athletes came from the village uh, into this games terminal. Those who know Heathrow Airport, this was positioned down towards the south uh, between Terminal 4 and the cargo uh, village. And just to give you a flavour for what it did, uh, you can see here buses from the village coming in to this area here. Uh, we created a 31-desk uh, check-in area, the only place you'll ever get single check-in of every airline at Heathrow, uh, probably forever, but certainly for a while. Uh, so any uh, athletes that hadn't got the boarding card or the bag tags, they'd go into this area. Uh, we'll take bags out the back. Now, from the, what I told you earlier, we had capacity in our transfer baggage systems because of the loading front of house. So these uh, vans would take any bags into the back of house where we could uh, deal with them with the capacity that we had available. And then over on this side of the building, uh, seven-lane security operation. Uh, and as I come back to, we put quite a quirky London Park dressing uh, over on this side. And just up uh, above where my fingers to the side of that wall, uh, we have the media camps in there on departure day and some of the images you'll be familiar with. And then right at the back, a coaching operation. That took athletes straight from this building to their terminal of departure and uh, injected them straight into the uh, departure lounge, bypassing all the front door uh, facilities. So that was our, our Olympic plan. Uh, Paralympics, very similar pattern. And just to give you a flavor for the characteristics of Paralympic volume, it's about a third the size of the uh, Olympic family. So there's about 6,000 athletes come, uh, much less overseas media interest uh, and uh, a lower level of sponsor interest. I think this game has set a new uh, standard in terms of the volume of local interest, as you saw from the, uh, the crowds that attended. But again, a similar pattern. So the village reopened, uh, having had a quick uh, refresh on the 22nd uh, of August, and that was the athlete peak. And then the 28th, the day before the opening ceremony, 10th of uh, September, the, uh, the big departure day, similar to the, the 13th. Again, we, we, we applied exactly the same solution set with a few minor exceptions. Uh, firstly, we didn't use the games terminal. Uh, two reasons why we didn't use the games terminal. Uh, we drifted now into September, so the capacity was available in the terminals to get the Paralympians through, obviously they're, and, and they're smaller in number. And also, in terms of you think about that facility, which is getting people on and off buses, not really the right facility for uh, wheelchair users, and the terminals were, were much better uh, for, for the Paralympians. You'll see some things in there, Paralympian facilitation. What do I mean by that? Uh, the work we did with the uh, the likes of Lucy Suka, Adi Adepatam, uh, said, look, when we fly around as wheelchair users, what we need, the one thing we need is our, they call it our legs back. So when I get off an aeroplane, uh, I need my wheelchair. I get my wheelchair to the aircraft side. So we focused a lot on solutions to get wheelchairs in volume and quickly back up to, uh, to aircraft side. And that's what we mean there. And then down here uh, uh, on the departing flight, on the other end, the ground transport, uh, we had uh, Loco put on roll-on, roll-off coaching solutions that were different uh, from the Olympics. Just to give you an image of some of those uh, solutions that we put in place for Paralympics, uh, when I did my media training, I was told not to talk about toilets, but I can talk about it here. So a lot of our estate, you know, we've got quite a variety of estate at Heathrow. We've got Terminal 5, uh, that's, that's a very new and uh, uh, modern facility, and then uh, some of the old parts of Terminal 1, Terminal 4, and Terminal 3, we needed to... Uh, boost uh, some of the uh, toilet capability. We learnt again from athletes that when you get off an aeroplane, some, some Paralympians can't go to the toilet on a long flight. So the first thing they want to do is go and uh, use the toilet. Um, just at the top there, uh, some of these electric wheelchairs, 200 kilos uh, for some of the uh, Bokia players. You might have heard about that sport. So we need to provide uh, equipment down on the ramp for the loaders to be able to get those uh, from containers down to ramp level. Uh, some stair climbers, we produce some of those. 
these uh, chairs in the middle, lightweight aisle chairs, so that the, the guys who were lifting people on and off their seats on airplanes could uh, get in and out more, more easily. And for T1 and T4, we uh, put in place in each of those terminals two temporary hoists so we could move the volume of wheelchairs uh, up and down. Hopefully that gives you a, gives you a flavor. So then we, uh, we had a plan. Uh, how did we get ready? Well, we went out there. I, I stood in uh, one of our buildings at Heathrow, the Heathrow Academy, for those of you who know Heathrow well, on the 6th of December, uh, thinking that was our first selection day for volunteers. And I thought, what the heck are we going to get through our door? Uh, and boy, were we overwhelmed. This, this part of our program, uh, I've never been involved with anything quite as emotional and inspirational in my, in my life as our volunteer program. We got uh, 2,500 people uh, who applied. We selected 1,200 in the end. And 700 people came and did 10 shifts or more at Heathrow in that volunteer force. And uh, some of them, uh, we said, look, we don't need you today. And they kept coming. They just came to work. And uh, Kristen, remember, remember that. And some of the sort of special memories within there, apologies for the grainy photo, but uh, it's not, hopefully recognize me, it's not that grainy. Uh, the lady in the middle is my wife. She was, uh, came in, and of her own volition, not because I was doing this, but she, she became a volunteer, did 15 shifts in Terminal 1. And the gentleman on the left is my son who did his work placement in the volunteer program. And I show you this because it was a microcosm of what was going on amongst this volunteer uh, program we had at Heathrow. And my wife, I've been at Heathrow for over 20 years, and she uh, talks about Heathrow as my mistress. Uh, and she said, after she's done two shifts, she said, I get it now. I get what it is about the airport that, you, you know, when it's in trouble, you just want to go there and help out. And uh, that's actually kind of helpful, I think, to people who work generally at the airport for their partners and families to understand that a bit more. And my son never worked out what I did anyway, so that was quite helpful. Um, games Terminal went up. Just to give you an outline of the timeline on the Games Terminal, 4th of January, I stood and shook hands with the gentleman who handed over a car park to me on which the Games Terminal was, uh, was built. Uh, it was handed over for ops readiness testing on uh, the 31st of May. Uh, it operated actually for two days, not three days. The third day's demand uh, was lower than we thought. Uh, and on Friday, it is handed back to the users of the car park. So that was probably the, the timeline. You get a sense there of that uh, park theme emerging. All those facilities going in that I, that I mentioned earlier uh, as part of the build program. Uh, just want to dwell on this one a bit. Um, something we do routinely now at Heathrow on the back of uh, T5 and uh, moving airlines around Heathrow in terms of operational testing and practicing uh, what we're going to do. So on the left-hand side there, uh, we ran test bags into our bag systems on top of the live bags to make sure that they could run at the sort of lows we expected on departure day. 28th of May, we went down to Olympic Village and all the handlers practiced uh, doing the remote check-in. Uh, you can see a uh, real humbling experience for me. I, I, I put myself in a wheelchair and took part in the trial of moving on and off uh, of aeroplanes, an Air France aeroplane, uh, a KLM aeroplane. It's the narrow body ones that are more difficult there. And we practiced uh, that uh, training going on over there. So as well as our 1,000 volunteers, we need to train. I think it was 1,200 uh, local volunteers worked at Heathrow, 600 Games Ambassadors, and all the staff who were participating. Uh, terminal walkthroughs. Uh, and then we did a load test of the Games Terminal, 400 staff, mainly from BAA, but from around the community uh, going through there. The other thing in parallel with this, you'll be familiar with the London Prepares series. These were the local test events. So when athletes came over to compete in them, they're obviously coming through Heathrow. And when I first took this uh, program on, uh, I immediately identified that in May there was uh, the Shooting World Cup. And now what's the significance of that? The significance of that is that there were a 1,000 firearms coming through Heathrow for that Shooting World Cup. We normally do 1,000 firearms in uh, eight months at Heathrow, and we had to do them in three days. Uh, so we had to put in 
special uh, processes for that, unique for the, the games. And that, that was really key because if we'd have failed in May and we'd got a high-profile failure, uh, that would have knocked our confidence, our reputation for the, for the games ahead. We didn't fail. You didn't hear about it, so it went, it went really, really well. But these were great test events in terms of getting us into some, uh, some live action. Uh, and you might have seen this. There are over 70 sites of the airport, and we sparkle clean the airport, uh, and we dressed it. Uh, some of this is still remaining. We had the Olympic rings in uh, Terminal 5 and uh, launched there with the, the Irish guards. Quite a, quite a spectacle when uh, they came to town. <coughs> and uh, media, <coughs> big piece we learned from Vancouver, provide good facilities in the airport for the media and, uh, and control them. So at the top there, you can see we pro provided a media room in every terminal, beefed up Wi-Fi. The media could go there and work. They also had to go there to get uh, their pass in the middle. So they couldn't come into the airport without having a, a pass. Um, and that would get them into the media zone, as I mentioned there on the, uh, on the right. And we brought in 30 uh, young people who were either in their summer holidays or they just finished their degree. And what a great summer they had, just uh, helping and working with the media to go on to media uh, sort of careers. So we put quite a lot into that. And uh, the shots that you saw were the shots of uh, athletes and the Olympic Games, not of, uh, not of Heathrow particularly. Uh, this is a major piece for us, staff, uh, team briefings, bringing that Heathrow community with us, our own staff uh, from a BAA point of view, and uh, we did a lot there, uh, as you can see. I won't dwell on the, uh, the detail. And this was our banner. It was about, uh, for us at Heathrow, it's, it's not about Heathrow, it's about uh, an important part we've got to play, and we need to, to have that pride uh, to play our part, and, uh, and we did. So, uh, off we went. Uh, the real key thing for us at Heathrow in terms of setting uh, the standard for London 2012, we, we had the baton first. So the 16th of July, there was a lot of media we invited down to Heathrow and uh, you will have seen those images and it, and it went very well for us uh, in the arrival phase. Uh, Russians, if you ever have habit of uh, getting involved with the games, they bring a lot of baggage and they bring uh, very big crates. I'm told they have uh, uh, caviar and uh, vodka in there to help them prepare for their Athletic uh, activities, uh, I, I never had that confirmed. This is quite an interesting one. This is uh, Team GB uh, canoeists up here, and there's actually a van here <laughs> underneath, and they're putting that on top of a van on the forecourt of Terminal, uh, terminal 3. Uh, so that went uh, very well there. The volunteers mainly at their uh, most voluminous application during that arrival phase. You can see they're having a great time. And I don't know whether Christine came across Brian. He was quite a character amongst the volunteer population. Uh, and then we turn around to the departure phase and uh, just some images here from uh, the village. What was interesting about the Olympics is in our calculations, we calculated uh, and the teams told us that 8,000 athletes would go out on the 13th of August. We actually found in reality they were much more spread. So the numbers uh, that we were dealing with were, were somewhat smaller than we had uh, built. But being Heathrow being Heathrow, that provided a level of resilience that was, that was quite helpful. And you get a sense of the sort of uh, pieces. This is, I think these are the Russian crates over here that you can uh, see on their way. They went back out. Uh, I'm not sure what they would have had in them going out. And then the games terminal. Uh, for me, this was really a special place where on the 13th and the 14th, everything we'd done came together. So uh, we had uh, our own staff in there, security officers. We had all the handling staff. We had our own volunteers, LOCOG volunteers there. Uh, and uh, we provided some quite uh, British actors, I'll call them. We had some guardsmen there, and uh, you can see the park keeper uh, at the top. And if you go on YouTube, you see some great images of athletes being interviewed uh, in that uh, park 
space. And then we provided this, uh, this memory tree. Uh, this was just somewhere where the athletes could write a little message about their memories of, of London. You can see some of those uh, messages hung up there. We've got 6,000 messages uh, on that tree. That tree's now in Terminal 5, if you're ever uh, passing through on display. So a very special uh, time and a very special environment. And what was interesting, it, it did its job in terms of capacity protection, but it became much bigger in its experience than we had ever uh, hoped for. A Paralympic, uh, similar again, but uh, we had that challenge of, of wheelchairs. About 25% of Paralympians in uh, wheelchairs. Uh, the Korean flight was probably our biggest challenge with the Korean team. They brought in uh, 60 wheelchair athletes on a single flight. Uh, we had uh, targeted it was going to take two minutes per athlete to move them uh, off an aeroplane. We managed to get them off in 45 minutes. and I'm pretty pleased with that uh, in terms of uh, an operational uh, delivery. Paralympians, uh, as you picked up through the summer, they're, they're quite different uh, to Olympians, more of the sort of amateur spirit and very, very uh, uh, pleasant and uh, good-humoured uh, individuals. I would say they, you know, the, the word to, that, I, that I picked up was not disabled but differently abled, very, very capable and able people, uh, very able to get themselves around an airport. So, for example, a blind football team, as you would have picked up, the goalkeeper is sighted, so the rest of the team just put their hand on the goalkeeper's shoulder and so on, they just get themselves through an airport, very, very self, self-sufficient. Um, on departure, I talk about iconic uh, images of the games, and Mike will recognise the iconic nature of one of these pictures. In the top left-hand corner, Jim Hunter, who many of you may know is managing director of the AOC at Heathrow. Uh, there he is in his village T-shirt, uh, mucking in, uh, helping, uh, uh, helping the teams out. You can see there some of the wheelchairs and all the wheels that we dealt with, and coming down here to, uh, to Heathrow on the the village bag build. Uh, departures, again, a, a big party day on the, uh, the 10th for us at Heathrow, uh, dealing with those wheelchair movements in reverse. We, we loaded 1,000 wheelchairs on that day uh, in terms of departures. Uh, all went uh, very well, and we, we put our volunteers at the gate, and they gave a, a guard of honour to the teams going out, gave them a round of applause, and they really appreciated uh, that departure uh, experience. This was quite an interesting one up here. This is one of my team, Sandy Stephen. Uh, you see there's one of the competition chairs somebody brought in as hand baggage to, uh, to the front of the terminal, so we had to uh, deal with that sort of challenge. Uh, and the other interesting thing on this day, you'll, you'll recognise the 10th of September, that was the day of the athletes' parade, which emerged quite late on for us of, uh, of a challenge in two folds. One, London was very busy, and how would we get the Paralympians round the congestion? And also, you remember the flyby. So having gone through all this preparation and planning, uh, it was decided we were going to do a flyby on one of our riskiest days, so we closed Heathrow down for 15 minutes. As ever in operations, you kind of face these challenges, you get, uh, you get on with them, we were, we were fine with that. Uh, some shots there of the, uh, the media. This is a big plus for us at Heathrow. We got 99% uh, positive coverage of Heathrow in the, the press and, and media reporting, uh, 1,000 references to Heathrow during the games. Uh, that's not been heard of before. Uh, and this theatre, all the way around the terminals, uh, you might have experienced some of that. You, you can only really do that if you've got a good, strong operation underneath. There's no point uh, trying to create uh, theatre and enjoyment if queues are all over the place. So uh, uh, that really created a great, uh, great atmosphere. And sitting around it, uh, there's, uh, there's myself at the end of the table. We created a games control, operated for 80 days. Uh, I was the games controller for uh, the, the big risk days. But the key here is every, again, team Heathrow, every party of Heathrow uh, represented. You just might notice at the back there, on the left-hand side, there's the police. You can see the low-cog uh, venue general manager there. On the left-hand side, we have airlines. 
uh, and really important in being on the same page with everybody and making uh, the right decisions and helping out the operators on the ground if, uh, if things don't go quite so well. Uh, I'm pleased to say generally there's a fairly quiet uh, environment in uh, games control during the games. So how did we get on? Uh, I'll just cover either side there. So during July, our customer service rating, our QSM survey as we call it, uh, all the customers gave us 4.3 out of 5. That's the uh, best score Heathrow has ever had on, uh, on arrivals. So not just uh, the games family, but, but all customers rated us very highly. And we were delighted to win the uh, future travel experience, uh, arrival experience of the year for 2012, uh, nicely presented to us in Vancouver, the host of the, uh, the previous games. And similarly, in, December, uh, in July, uh, we got a 427 on departures. Again, the highest we've ever recorded at Heathrow in terms of uh, customer rating. And I won't dwell in the middle, but our uh, punctuality, baggage performance uh, was, was good on those days. On the big risky days, it was good. It was certainly on a level with anything around it and within our uh, targeted levels of uh, performance. <coughs> and what was the media political view? Uh, we were delighted the media carried uh, positive stories. The 14th of August was a great day in terms of the game's terminal coverage. Uh, here's an article by Ian King from the Times, uh, which summarizes it well. No news being good news. You haven't heard about baggage chaos, and that, that's a good thing for what we've done at Heathrow. Uh, letter on the right-hand side here from Jeremy Hunt came on the 14th of uh, uh, August, when uh, Jeremy Hunt was the minister responsible for the Olympics, saying we had exceeded government's expectations in what we had done at Heathrow. So that was... Uh, that was great to see. Uh, so we then, uh, having gone through it all, what's, uh, what do we leave behind? Uh, a big piece for us, as well as some of the physical things, is the, uh, the culture of the place uh, and what it became during the summer. And I, I come back repeatedly and unashamedly to this, uh, Team Heathrow. Uh, we totally approach things in terms of our planning, preparation, operational delivery as a single Heathrow team with a great service partner uh, with, with LOCOG joining our operation there. And uh, there are volunteers here, but this lady here, for example, this is uh, Colin Matthews, our chief executive's uh, PA, uh, who's down there having a whale of a time uh, and bringing our non-operational staff into the front end of the operation has uh, affected their mind about how we go forward and how we develop the airport, really focused around customers. Some of the things that uh, we carry on, uh, with those arrival score ratings, some things we did around, obviously, the border, we did around baggage, uh, the volunteers that we want to continue forward and keep that arrival experience at a height level. Uh, we are going to have a legacy volunteer scheme at Heathrow, and of those volunteers, uh, 450 of them registered interest to want to come back and volunteer and work with us at Heathrow. So they'll be back at Christmas, uh, and then we'll build in uh, next year. Uh, with Terminal 2 uh, now not too far away, our approach to watch readiness has been uh, taken on a level, and that's uh, helpful. You'll see more of the dressing and theatre and experience of Heathrow. Uh, we did invest in some new assets and they, they're, they're useful going forward. Uh, and our approach to taking a more proactive stance with media and internal staff communications, again, we'll, we'll run forward with some of those. So those are some of the things. But if you remember at the beginning, I talked about that uh, Heathrow image. And if you put Heathrow Paralympics into Google, that's what you get. You get people in simple terms. And that was a key theme for us. Heathrow became a more human uh, place to be uh, for customers uh, in terms of its reported perception. Uh, and you can see that, uh, that for yourself. And we'd like, when you put Heathrow in, uh, in uh, a year's time, two years' time, you see people there, you know, uh, and they're not protesters, would be, would be helpful. Now, you remember at the beginning, I said uh, one of the things I wanted was uh, great memories for the people who worked at Heathrow during the games, and 
one of these books. And I'm pleased to say we have a book. So, uh, again, full of uh, great photo memories. And uh, they also had a DVD. We, we've uh, put a DVD together, which I think really pulls together the uh, mood and uh, colour and experience of, uh, of our summer. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Andy. Um, I think if I'd known it'd been so much fun to volunteer, I would probably have done it myself. We've got a bit of time for questions. Um, so if anyone um, likes to volunteer a question, um, just go ahead. Rob. You didn't mention the sort of the role of the ground handlers. Obviously, they were um, they were involved. Did the ground handling companies have to provide extra resources during this period, or how did you manage their activities? Um, yeah, I mean, they, they, they as as with ourselves, they were under the Team Heathrow umbrella. So when I refer to Team Heathrow, it's effectively the seventy thousand people who work at Heathrow. Um, uh, yeah, the the ground handling. Companies. There were 10 ground handlers that emerged that uh, did the village operation, went to the games terminal. And uh, it was uh, throughout this uh, period, in terms of the extra cost that ourselves and airlines and handlers incurred, uh, it was one of those things that was uh, continually to our mind. So uh, they did provide extra resources uh, on those days. Uh, airlines had to make their own arrangements with the ground. I don't know what arrangements airlines made with ground handlers, but... Uh, uh, everybody came to the party, I and mean, it was a great thing about it. Uh, uh, all of us recognised that none of us chose for the Olympics to come to London, uh, but it did, and we wanted to play our part and be proud of it. So uh, uh, the monies were there, but it, uh, it kind of pe- pe- people stood up and put put bodies where they needed to when they needed to. There was quite a major expenditure by a lot of parties. Yeah, I mean, it, we, we've uh, we publicised uh, as an airport authority. We spent twenty million pounds from our profit and loss. Uh, in terms of our part in the, in the games. Uh, I don't know what, what airlines put into it as a total. Uh, and we've got some assets there that I mentioned that, that will go into the regulated asset base and uh, be usable going forward. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we, we're hoping uh, this is a bit of a long game for us in, uh, in the airport and in the aviation business that, you know, having gone through what we've gone through generally with the Olympics, people like what they see and they'll come and uh, have a look at us next year and the year after and, uh, and so on. It's uh, Jeremy Penrose, I think it was tourism minister. He came to our year to go event. And he said Barcelona in particular found this as a, like, it's a 20-year game. If you do it well, you've got some chance of ongoing people coming to have a look at you. But boy, if you do it badly, <laughs> the, game, the game's over. And we sort of took it in that way. My name is Ryan Tyler. I'm uh, coordinated for Munich Airport the preparation of the Euro 2012 for the Ukraine airports. And I liked very much your presentation and what is uh, very much in- similar that the people um, we worked with, you know, they enjoyed it also a lot. Unfortunately, we couldn't do such a, a nice video, but we went in the fence on the last day to the to to see Elton John and also Queen, which we also enjoyed a lot and we had a All lot right. of fun. But besides that, I have one question is, uh, you mentioned that uh, you prepared in testing the the, 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 the game terminal and also the, uh, the special situation of the Paralympic, but how did you cope with the peak situation? Did you prepare, did you make special uh, trials or testings also on this peak situation, especially when it comes to uh, immigration? <coughs> or, no, okay, you had, don't have this on departure here, but, uh, yeah. on security and this. Did, did you have something like this? No, it's... Uh... 
as, as you know, in terms of airports, it's very difficult you know, to simulate, simulate a peak 18-hour-a-day operation. Yeah. So our, our approach throughout all of these things was that we, we ran uh, effectively what would be our two-hour peak. So, so the, uh, the equivalent of the two-hour peak of the games terminal, a two-hour peak of loading those test bags into the bag system. So uh, we, you know, uh, we didn't run it full end-to-end. -end. So we were pretty sure about uh, our throughput capabilities of all of those all of those elements. And then we spent a lot of time, uh, something I, I worked on Terminal 5 previously, about making sure that uh, everybody who's working there uh, knew how they were getting to work, uh, went to their workstation, and they were mentally ready to get in their place of their new place of work, be that in the village or in the games terminal, places that aren't normally around Heathrow, so they can hit the ground comfortable and prepared yeah. and that they've got something to eat and drink yeah. at the right times. Yeah. And quite a lot of attention on, uh, on those sort of elements. Uh, but no, we, we, it would just be, uh, I can't think of a way of, you know, running that whole 13th of August operation in total for an 18-hour day. We just wouldn't be able to do it. So as, as ever with these things, you, 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 you take that approach. It's a level of risk, isn't it, in terms of what, how much you do and the risk you take on. And uh, when you go through it, you know that was enough. If you've had some issues that you could have foreseen in the testing phase, then uh, you know you haven't done enough. And as far yeah. as we're concerned this summer, we... We got through it. I believe we did enough, uh, and we had a lot more reserve in our locker. Uh, something I didn't mention, in our testing phase, we did 150 uh, exercises of things that could go wrong. Uh, so we were very clear what we would do. Uh, I was quite, well, no, I wasn't, but I was quite disappointed the games terminal didn't burn down because I'd practiced it three or four times. <laughs> uh, and we knew precisely what we were going to do. So if we lost that facility, we knew yeah. the buses would go to the terminals, we knew where the troughs were and how we'd load shed and all those sort of things. Yeah. So we did a lot of planning and preparation around that. And if I can be brutally honest, the, uh, the shock we had at Heathrow with uh, the snow event at the end of 2010, uh, not, you know, not great at the time, but it was a blessing in disguise for us about taking up our, our game in terms of our level of resilience, customer welfare, uh, contingency planning and practicing and exercising. So that, that helped. Thank you. Of course, in Ukraine, we had the advantage that we had this uh, Ukraine army, which is, you know, we had a yes. <laughs> yeah. lot of people. Um, yeah, we were hoping we wouldn't be offered the army. We were in some <laughs> <laughs> difficulty. Uh, uh, what, maybe one more question. What would you do differently? If you would to have to do it again, what would you change in your, your, your approach? Would you, or would you change anything? Or? Um, no, I mean, I, I, was, uh, I was very pleased with the... Uh, it's interesting when you, you go back. The, the, the Paralympic uh, demand played out pretty much as we had forecast mm. it and, and, and much more concentrated around when the village is open, they come. Yeah. Uh, and then when and they say to the end of the event, what we found is the Olympics uh, is becoming just much more professional. So more so than any other games, athletes came and went to compete. So Team GB, for example, the, the athletes didn't go to the opening ceremony. They just mm -hmm. came for the athletics bit and then they mm -hmm. moved on to the next event. So the demand didn't quite pan out as we thought it would. However, when you're making your decision, as we did in October 2011, about what you, what you put in place... Mm -hmm. It'd be a brave man to say, I think that's what's going to happen, given the athletes are telling you this and the underlying load. Uh, so I probably would make the same decisions uh, again. The one area that I think we learned most about was the first execution of the village uh, on that day before the big departure day. And the, the reason that uh, Olympians are there in the village is because they're competing largely. <coughs> so if you're trying to run a village operation, uh, uh, you've you kind of got to be cognizant of that. And uh, we sort of worked, to, we didn't work directly with athletes. We worked more indirectly through LOCOG. So we didn't have a clear interface with their, their intentions and desires on that day. We created that for the Paralympics. So we had a direct dialogue with all the teams from an airport point of view and were able to 
schedule them when they could do it. And that's why you see the numbers are kind of similar for Paralympics to Olympics. And some people just didn't show up for the Olympic. Uh, now, with the Games Terminal in place, that was a contingency against that, and we were able to deal with it. But I think if I had my time again, I'd spend more direct time with the teams in the preparation for that. Okay. Uh, Thank you. Part. Thank you. There was quite a lot of hoo-ha before the Games about the Special Olympic traffic lanes. How did these work out in practice? Um, I, I can give you an airport view. As obviously, <clears throat> once they're off our uh, perimeter road, then they're, 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 they're under the control of the highways agencies. Uh, I mean, in terms of the purpose of getting teams to and from the village, they worked uh, pretty well with us. They gave us a, a level of... Uh, certainty on journey times that I don't think you would have had uh, uh, without them. Uh, I'm not close enough to comment on how the actual mix of that went with the, the other traffic that was outside of uh, my domain. I'm afraid. TFL's been uh, looking at the report on this. What they found was been so successful in trying to get traffic away from London during the game yes. yeah. that there was actually not a problem. Yeah. On a number of occasions, they were able to reopen the lanes yep. to general traffic. And, and they, oddly, they had the same impact on the public transport. So a lot of the official family yeah. ride around on the tube bus. Yes. Part of the London experience. Yeah, yeah quite right. Rather than being confined to the special lanes. Yeah. Uh, what happened to the Games Terminal? Is it still there? And if, if, if so, what per, to what purpose will it be put? Um, it's gone. It uh, started to come down on the 16th of August. So literally we operated it and started to bring it down. And uh, it's returned to a car park on uh, Friday. Um, we thought long and hard uh, at a capacity-constrained airport about whether we could keep a use for such a facility. It was something that we, we hired as a structure from De Boers who do these temporary facilities. And uh, in the end, we decided that uh, if, you, if you put your head around it, then it's not going to get the level of use and it was a temporary structure so it wasn't really fit for ongoing uh, purpose but quite a interesting conversation I had with my board about putting that up for two days operation as you can imagine but uh, it served its purpose nobody said to me since uh, that we spent too much on it I'll just have a quick question mm -hmm. um, you talked about the QSM scores yeah uh, through, throughout yeah. you know August and July and August did you actually do any special kind of uh, scores for the athletes themselves or get any feedback on from athletes as to how they found the experience? Um, not, not in any, uh, any scientific way. We got uh, quite a bit back through, uh, through Lowcock, who had spoken to uh, athletes down route and in the village as they'd come through. So certainly on arrivals, we got some very, very uh, positive feedback. Uh, I mean, they said it was the, the best airport experience that they'd, they'd had. And certainly the Paralympians, who I think, from what I can pick up, don't get treated particularly well in the airports of the world. I think they were uh, pretty happy with the experience they got at Heathrow. Was the feedback we got? Do you think the uh, the experience you had with the Paralympians has led you to thinking about disabled people in the future and how they use aircraft and public transport? Do you think you've learnt any valuable lessons? Yeah, I think uh, on a personal level, and I think it's broadly true of the airport that that uh, our Paralympic experience uh, has been rich in, in its legacy. Uh, I, th I think. Uh, I mean, the Paralympians themselves, because they're such strong, fit individuals, they're not quite like normal airport uh, users, but it took our thinking and our attitude into a, into a different space. And just having people like uh, Lucy Suka, Adi Adepatan, uh, there's a guy called James O'Shea, who was one of the swimmers who lost his legs, just around the place, and, and the WizKids guys, you can see uh, there was kind of a mental and attitudinal 
shift. And I think the profile has uh, shot up within our airport organisation generally. And, and we should be very determined to keep that, keep that going uh, forward. So, I mean, it's, it's quite warm after the event now, so uh, we're on it. But, uh, you know, we need to work hard to make sure that is the case. And, and again, we put some facilities in there that wouldn't, I don't think, ordinarily have been there had we not gone through it. Um, apart from the uh, smiling immigration officers, was there anything that you learnt that will actually benefit us regular users of the airport in the future, particularly with the opening of um, Heathrow East or Terminal 2? I mean, I think uh, there was something more than helping the Gaines family out with, with the volunteers. Um, and I think we have become, and, and perhaps those first images reflect that, uh, we've been quite, become quite transactionally good at Heathrow. But I think we've lost uh, quite a lot of the human interface. And uh, we learn a lot of this from Vancouver. And uh, my, my colleague there, Steve Hankinson, he said they, 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 they run 400 volunteers at uh, Vancouver, and it's a bit of a culture in Canadian airports. And he said his customer service ratings, he can correlate the number of volunteers against the ratings. And the difference between, you know, you go in uh, Heathrow airports, a busy, confusing places, and looking at a sign on one of those big connection boards with all the code shares flying up, trying to work out when you're coming through Heathrow versus a person in a pink shirt, you can say, I'm going to, could you, could you just help me? I help loads of people. I just stood around in this thing, and it's amazing, 10, 20 minutes with the customers come up to you, and uh, a lady coming in from, uh, I think she's coming in from Iran, couldn't speak a word of English, gave me a sheet of paper, and said, I, I need, can you show me where the BMI 8129 is? And I just walked her, and, uh, you know, hopefully she would have felt much better for the experience. That's the main thing I, I take from it. And the volunteer scheme for us, uh, uh, when we get that back in and land that, volunteers, you know, coming come to the airport uh, through your own choice as opposed to being paid creates a very different mindset. And it, it did have a halo effect, I think, on the staff there, the enthusiasm. Uh, so that humanisation would be the big thing, I think. I think we can do the assets, but the, the people bit. Did you do any background security checks on the volunteers? Yeah, they went through the full, yeah, through the, yeah. full normal process, yeah. Um, in terms of the cost, were there actually major differences between the uh, the actual cost and the projected estimates that you made over the experience that everyone actually had? So did we did we spend more than we thought we would? Yeah, basically. Uh, I was pleased to see today there was uh, reported that uh, I think local handed three seventy million back of, of the overall, and we uh, we handed uh, some money back from our budget, so it was within our projection that we made in about summer eleven. Coming back to uh, the actual games tag. Yeah. Um, who are the main users of these games tag? Well, car park. What's car park? And uh, how did it affect them during the Olympics? Um, yeah, car park's always a, a controversial subject matter in any environment, I think. Uh, so, because of its position, it was the staff who uh, worked down in that cargo village, if you know Heathrow. So, it's cargo staff and uh, from some of the catering companies, Gate Gourmet, worked down there. Um, so we uh, had some capacity in a car park that wasn't quite as close, and uh, we made arrangements to uh, to temporarily displace them into that that space. It was quite a tough bit of the project, but we managed to to get through that. Andy, I've got a question. Yeah, I, I know I was a journey leader there, so I met many of the volunteers, and we did have a number of uh, students as yes. our volunteers. Uh, do you know if any of them have used the experience and uh, maybe got themselves a job in the industry? I've certainly got quite a few CVs sitting in my <laughs> inbox that I've. Uh, uh, we, uh, we had a family fun day on the 30th of September, uh, which was just a big thank you to everybody to, to come in. And we, we ran a jobs stall at that fun day, and uh, our HR team were present, and they, they were just overwhelmed with 
those applications, a lot of them came from students. Uh, we're in the market for things like service team leaders for our security operation, and uh, we got, uh, we think, you know, about half of the roles we wanted to fill through people who just came across to the HR people. It was really good. And a lot of those were, were students. So I couldn't put my hand on my heart and say we've employed our first volunteer, but uh, there's certainly a, the potential is, uh, is there. Andy, you mentioned you had a number of theatre experiences yes. um, during the games. I mean, what was the most popular out of all of those? That's a very good question. Um, <laughs> yeah, a particular favourite of mine was uh, uh, the Irish Guards who came for the, uh, the, the unveiling of the rings. And what I said as the uh, accountable prime operator is, I'm fine with all this stuff, but I don't want passengers going that way and theatre going that way. And uh, when the Irish Guards were there, they, uh, you'd been in the arrival area of Terminal 5, so the rings were over Costa Coffee, and the Irish Guards were marching in a fairly quiet space. And then when we had the unveiling, uh, they had to come ac across. So the guy who was leading them, he says, uh, we said, do you need us to clear the, uh, the customers out of the way? And he said, no, I can do that. And he turned around and, and he went, they went straight through the customers. But the customers loved it. Uh, but that, that was a personal favourite of mine. Mining Class, you saw there, she came and played in, uh, in Terminal 5, if you're a fan of Mining Class. It's quite a good pianist. You found that in the games. I don't know whether you went to see the games, but there was, uh, as well as the athletics, there was a lot of theatre about how the games were put on, and we were quite keen to reflect that, uh, that theme in the airport. Yes, retail is so important for an airport commercially. Uh, did, you, did the athletes uh, manage to avoid the uh, long detour through retail with all these arrangements, and if so, did uh, revenue suffer badly? Um, I think some of the athletes, are, you know, I referred to the, uh, the Russians who were quite keen on our whiskey as they departed and, and cleared us out of whiskey, was pleased to say. But um, because, as, as you will have picked up during the game itself, the baseline of our load was, was down. Uh, our revenues and indeed our retail revenues have uh, taken a hit during the games period as a result of that. Uh, but the teams themselves did, did uh, enjoy the experience of our retail at uh, Heathrow. I'll just make a point rather, rather than a uh, question. Um, thank you very much for your presentation. Um, I worked at, uh, for Lukog at uh, Heathrow and Heathrow Operations, and uh, certainly the video and the presentation brought back a lot of happy memories, almost a tear to the eye. <laughs> um, just what, the point I wanted to make was, I'm not sure if it's necessarily come, come across, but the working relationship with Lukog and BAA I thought was absolutely excellent at all, at all levels, and that worked really well. And uh, it's an important element. It hasn't always been so with organising committees and airports from what I picked up from previous games. On behalf of the Society, I would like to extend our warm appreciation to Andy for his talk tonight.